Well, good morning. Go ahead and uh, grab a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 16. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to tell you about a story I read about a Texas father that um, didn't offer his name, uh, but he, something, he had an unexpected adventure on a family vacation. He, um, he and his family were driving across the country, and they were driving across uh, on vacation in this van, and they had a little place in the back of the van where different family members could get back there and sleep during the trip. And so this dad had been doing a lot of the driving, and he was pretty tired. They made the decision that they would stop and get something to eat, and they would gas up, and then he would rotate to the back and, and get some rest and get some sleep. So they, they get something to eat. They pull into the gas station. You know, he fills up. He goes in and pays. And it takes a little bit longer than usual. So there's this long line in there. They're moving kind of slow. And he pays. He finally gets up to the cashier. He pays, walks outside, and the van is gone. So his family, his family thought he was already in the back sleeping. Now, the problem was he didn't have his cell phone on him either. So things are, he's starting to panic at this point, And he can't remember the cell phone numbers of his family members. And uh, so he borrows uh, one of the uh, cell phones from the gas station attendant. And he remembers his cell phone is in the back. And it's plugged in. The problem is it's on silent, so nobody's even hearing it as he's calling 20 times. So uh, finally he makes the decision to go to a hotel. He gets on a computer. He logs on to social media. He's able to send a, a message uh, via social media to one of his family members. They realize 100 miles away that they've left their dad. They've left him behind. So they turn around and go and pick him up. Now today... We're beginning a series that we're calling Man Up. And this series, we're going to look at what the Bible says to men. And the thing that we notice as we're going to be walking through this series over the next few weeks is that God calls men not to be left behind, but to be out in front. That's where he wants us to be. He wants us as men to be out in front, not left behind. And I, I shared a little bit last week but men are getting left behind in our society today. I don't know if you realize this, but there is a crisis happening amongst men in our, in our society and in our culture today. I shared with you that 77% of suicides are men, that 90% of all people incarcerated in prisons and jails, men. Not only that, but we see the, the number of men that are, or number of boys that are dropping out of high school is increasing. The number of men that are going to college, decreasing. And so something's happening. Men are much more likely to be alcoholics. Men are much more likely, you know, to overdose. Women own homes, single women own homes at twice the rate that single men do. So something's happening. It's not just emotional. It's not just mental. There's something physical happening to men as well. Because what we're finding out, I read, I read this article online, that across the board, on average, we're seeing, we're seeing testosterone levels in men in the United States dropping significantly. And as of about eight to 10 months ago, there's not a single research study in the United States Somebody dedicated to finding out what in the world is happening. Because that is a game changer just in and of itself. And, and so something's happening. Now, not only that, but, but we also know that something's happening related to fathers in America. So it's not just, it's not just men overall, but, but something's happening among dads. And there's a pastor in Houston his name is Blake Wilson. He's coined the term daddy deprivation. And what he means by that is there is a profound and a prevailing absence of fathers in their own homes today. So something's happening. Listen to what David Blankenhorn says in his book, Fatherless America. Let me, let me share just a, a, just a staggering quote. Listen to what he says. A generation ago, an American child could reasonably expect to grow up with his father. 
Today, an American child can reasonably expect not to. Fatherlessness is now approaching a rough parity with fatherhood as a defining feature of American childhood. Tonight, about 40% of American children will go to sleep in homes in which their fathers do not live. Before they reach the, the, the age of 18, more than half of our nation's children are likely to spend at least a significant portion of their childhoods living apart from their fathers. Never before in this country have so many children been voluntarily abandoned by their father. Never before have so many children grown up without knowing what it means to have a father. Now, can I, can I share with you what's really scary about that? That was written in the mid-1990s. And it has only gone up since then. This is becoming a profound, a profound issue in our society today. And the thing that I really want all of us to see, this affects all of us, whether you're male or female. Because when, when, you know, when little boys, when there's in the absence of godly men, in the absence of godly fathers, little boys can't find out who they are. They can't find out what a, what a picture of godly masculinity really is without the presence of godly men in their life. And it's really difficult for young girls to understand the difference between a good guy and a bad guy if they're not godly men surrounding them. Do you see how that affects all of us? And what happens in the absence of godly men and the absence of godly fathers, insecure, ungrounded boys grow up to be insecure, ungrounded men. And this is huge. And it affects every single one of us. And it's that really at this point where I'd have to say, it, there are a lot of you ladies today that as we work through this, this series of message, messages over the next few weeks, it's going to stir pain within you. Because, because there's been an ungrounded, insecure man who's caused you a lot of pain. You know, a father, a husband, a boyfriend who didn't do what God called him to do. And he leveraged his strength for abuse and abandonment rather than serving and loving his family. And you caught the shrapnel of that. And that's painful. And the thing that I want to tell you is this. The good news of the gospel is that there is hope for healing. There's hope for healing in that. That there's healing grace. That God says, I will be a father to the fatherless. I will be a husband to the husbandless. That is the gospel. And that's what, that's what we want to we talk about during this series. Now, so there's not just really a father problem. There is a man problem. And part of this, part of this is the fact that we really don't have a definition of manhood. We, we don't have a... You know, we don't have a definition of what it really means to be a man. And we, and we don't have a process by which boys can become men. We don't have that rite of passage. And so it's, it's confusing. Now, I, I did a little bit of research to try to figure this out. And, you know, when, when do we celebrate boys becoming men in our culture today? Can you, can you think of... When we would celebrate that. When a boy steps right into manhood, when do we celebrate that? I did a little research, and Obamacare says we celebrate it at age 26. Okay, Budweiser says we celebrate it at age 21. The U.S. Army says we celebrate it at age 18. Xbox says we celebrate it at age 17. The Department of Motor Vehicles says we celebrate it at age 16. And then Disney World says we celebrate it at age 10 because that's when you have to pay the adult prices. The only, <laughs> yeah. So the only two people that, are, that I found that agree are Delta Airlines and Advil. They agree that two years old or and above is an adult and that's when you're gonna pay. So what's happening, church, 
is, you know that for most of human history, we've had two categories of males. We've had, we had boys and we had men for most of human history. But just over the last 50 years, we've created another category for males, and that's called adolescence. And an adolescence is neither, you know, neither a boy nor a man. It's just a dude that shaves. That's, that's, what, that's what an adolescence is. And so in the absence of godly, you know, godly men, in the absence of godly fathers, and I'm just speaking generally, over, you know, over the last 50 years, what we're seeing is we're seeing adolescents try to, try to take that step of manhood by themselves. And it's really hard. And, and they're looking in all the wrong places because our culture says to be a man, you need to be sexually promiscuous. To be a man, you, you should be able to do drugs and alcohol. You know, to, to be a man, you need to achieve as a video gamer or whatever. And so a lot of adolescents are dialed in to trying to become a man through those things. Or maybe just through athletic achievement and accomplishment. And, and so this is, this is a real struggle in, in our society today. And so our society responds in a couple of different ways to this. Because there's this crisis of manhood, because there's this crisis of masculinity, our culture has responded in a couple of extremes, if you will. One extreme, and you hear this every single day, but our culture says there's really no difference between male and female. They're exactly the same. That's how our culture's saying it. It, it's saying it so loud, we're confused. We don't even know which bathroom to use anymore in our, in our country today. Now, that's just a distortion, church. I don't have to show you Bible verses that explain the difference between male and female, right? I can just show you a biology book. So that's a distortion. Another distortion that I think we're seeing in, in some pockets is the way that some people respond to this crisis just by saying, well, men are better than women. Men are just better. And that is a distortion as well. That is anti-gospel. That is no place in our culture, especially in the church. It has no place in that. And so we're seeing, we're seeing this, this crisis of masculinity, you know, it manifests itself in a couple of different distortions. What I want to do is I, wanna, I want us to go to God's word. And I want us to see what God's word says to men, and I want, to, I want to see what God says about men through his word. So I want to, I want to share with you a great passage of scripture. It's really short, and, and uh, it's, it's found in 2 Corinthians 16. It's, it's verses 13 and 14. And I really think that this gives us a great picture of godly masculinity. And it is, it is what I believe God is calling the men in our church to be about. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 13 and 14. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word together? <laughs> hear, hear the word of God. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. This is the reading of God's holy word for God's people. You may be seated. Now, I love this passage because it is so succinct. It is so clear. It gets right to the heart of the issue. And when you understand what's happening in the Corinthian church, you understand exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. Because if you understand what's going on in the Corinthian church, you understand that what Paul is doing in the letter to the Corinthians is he's writing this letter and he's solving problem after problem after problem after problem throughout this letter, through 15 chapters of 1 Corinthians. And all of the problems that are in this immature, sinful, kind of, you know, just struggling church, the root of it is immaturity. That's the root of it. And Paul is, he's, he's ending this letter. He's trying to think through, okay, how can I sum this up in a way that really just gets right to the heart of the issue? And he challenges men and he says to, to men, I want, to the men in this congregation, I want you to man up. I want you to act like men. It's time that we take on the mantle of maturity and reflect what it means to live 
you know, as a godly man. That's what, that's what he is saying in this passage. He, he, gives us, he gives us a great picture in verses 13 and 14 of what godly masculinity is all about. Now, before I explain that, let me just say this. It's almost as if in our culture today, and I, I think the men would agree with me, it, it's almost like we have to apologize for being men today. I mean, we have to almost be apologetic for that. And if you notice, I mean, just think of movies and TV shows that you watch, Netflix or whatever. Can can you remember the last movie where the husband and the father was the hero of the story? A lot of times, not not every time, and there's some movies where that is the case. but, But most of the time what we're seeing is men are just portrayed as buffoons and aloof and weak and passive. And that is one of the dominant images that we get. And what we're seeing a lot is we're seeing movies where women are taking the role to be the protectors, to be the fighters, to be the defenders. And men are just fading in the background. And it's almost like men in our culture are getting left behind. And I just want to tell you that God in his grace has called us as men to be leaders, to be lovers, to be prophets, to be priests and to be providers and protectors. That's what he's called us to be. And that's what this this series is about. And that's what he's he's challenging the Corinthian men to be as well. That's what he's challenging them to be as well. Now, I think we've got to be cautious. There's a little bit of a a trap door that that we need to be mindful of. It would be a mistake for us, for you to hear me preaching and teaching. It would be a mistake for us to think, okay, I'm going to get it together. As a man, I'm going to really get it together. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more. I'm going to be more. I'm going to, you know, do what, I'm going to be what God calls me to be. And I would just tell you from experience that that is a ticket to failure. Because what God has called us to be and to do, we can't do it in our own power, and our own strength. It's not by might it's not by power but it is by his spirit says the lord so doing more and trying harder and 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 being more that's not the ticket what we need to do is come what we need to do is come to our knees the way that we man up is we kneel down and we confess the areas where we've fallen short as men that we haven't always been watchful that we haven't always stood firm in the faith that we have at times been immature, that we've shown immaturity, that we've not been strong in the Lord, that we've not always loved. I think, I think change happens when we just get honest with ourselves and say, you know what, I have fallen short. You know, I have missed the mark, if you will. And I want to tell you, I'm the lead misser of the mark. But that's when change happens. We man up by kneeling down in humility and confession and saying, God, I need your Holy Spirit to help me do this. You were never meant to do it by yourself, men. You were never designed to do it alone in your own strength and in your own power. What God wants you to do is he wants you to rely on him. He wants to work in your heart and change you. He wants your life to be the miracle of the working of his grace. So it's not about trying harder and doing more. It's about trusting and relying on him. Now, here is, here is where I want to go today. I want us to go to, to Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, I want us, I, I think as we kind of think through where we, the road that we want to take for this, is we want to, we want to begin where God begins. We want to begin with a picture of godly masculinity that God has drawn for us and he draws it for us in Genesis chapter 2 and I want us to spend a little bit of time there because I think what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is we see God calling Adam to certain callings that you and I need to be dialed into and this is going to sound basic. It, you know, it might sound kind of elementary to you. It might even be kind of a review for you. But this is where we have to begin, to begin to recapture what it means to live as godly, masculine men that reflect the character of the man of all men, Jesus Christ. So I want to share with you three callings today. 
three callings from God to men. Here's the first one. Men are called to be workers. Men are called to be workers. Look with me at Genesis 2 verse 15. Now notice what, notice what the writer of Genesis records. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. What do you see there? God calling Adam to work. What we see very practically, church, is work is holy. Work is good. Work is pleasing to God. This predates the fall. This predates a sin-cursed world. God, God makes the garden and he purposefully doesn't finish his work in the garden because he's invited men, he's invited Adam to join him in his work of, of creation. And then as we, as we move through scripture, new creation. Work is really good. So as men and as women, we are called to work. Now I was reading an article in the New York Times, and the title of the article is, Why Aren't More Men Working? Why aren't more men working? And in the article, it, it talked about how the unemployment rate is really low, but the number of men, the percentage of men not working has tripled since 1950. So it seems like to me that we're working hard not to work. That's what it seems like. And it seems like there's this trend in our society that's troubling with the other trends that, that men are abdicating God's call to work. Now think about this. What is work? Work is when you take raw materials that God has given you and you, you shape them and you form them for human blessing and human flourishing. That's work. So a home builder is going to take rock and wood and he's going to fashion it together and build a home for a family so that they can be and do what, what God has called a family to do. That's a huge blessing. And that work honors God. An engineer will take steel and concrete and make roads and make bridges. And just think about the blessing of roads and bridges for human flourishing today. Think about that. So somebody had to work through that, develop the process, and, and that became a huge blessing to all of us. And we just don't even think about it. Or you think about a chemist or a scientist or a medical professional taking chemical elements, you know, fashioning them together so that, so that medicines would bring healing to our, to our aching bodies. Work, work, the purpose of work is human flourishing and it is holy and it is good. And we need to be working. That's what God has called us to be. In the new heaven and new earth, there's going to be work to do. There's going to be a whole lot of rest, but there's going to be work as well. God is honored in work. Now, now get this, church. Let me, let me just share this with you because maybe you've never really thought about this. There's no distinction between secular and sacred work. In God's perspective, in God's economy, there's no difference between secular and sacred work. In other words, my job as a pastor is not more holy than your job as a welder, a teacher, a truck driver, a lawyer, a doctor, or whatever it is that you do. My job isn't more holy than yours. Why? Because Jesus is Lord over all of it. He owns all of it. And all of it is designed to bring glory to, to our creator. That's that's what it is. And so Jesus is Lord and he is honored in work. I, I was just thinking about how much God works in the marketplace. Because I think a lot of times we think church is sacred and then the marketplace is something else that's secular. Do you know Jesus made 132 appearances in the New Testament and 122 of them were in the marketplace. They were in a work context. Of the 52 parables that Jesus told, 45 of them had a workplace connotation or context to them. There are 40 divine interventions in the book of Acts. 39 of them occurred in the workplace. 39. Think about this. When Jesus 
chose 12 disciples, he didn't call 12 clergymen to follow him. He had a bunch of clergymen he could have called. But who does he call? He calls fishermen. He calls tax collectors. He calls businessmen to follow him. Isn't that interesting? Do you know in Hebrew, the word work and worship come from the same root word, avadah. So what that tells us is we don't just worship on Sunday morning when we gather and sing songs. We worship as we do work for the king. And so God has invited us into his work. And as men, part of what it means to be godly and masculine is we work and we work really hard. And God has invited us into that. Now, let me add one more thing. Do you know that of all the people in the world, of all the people in the world, Christians should be the best workers on the planet? Like when someone is trying to hire somebody for a job, they should hire a Christian. They should want to hire a Christian over a non-Christian every time. You know why? Because we don't work for ourselves and we don't merely just work for a paycheck. That would be emptiness and vanity. We really work for the glory of God and we do excellent work. So that means as Christ followers, our work should be the best work in town. We should be the best bankers and we should be the best auto mechanics and the best salesmen, the best small business owners in the nation today. You know why? Because we do it to bring glory and honor to God. It infuses our day with purpose and intentionality. Does that make sense? God has called men to be workers. Here's our second calling. God has called men to be followers. God has called men to be followers. Go back to Genesis 2. Let's ground it right in the text. Look at verses 16 and 17. God has called men to be followers. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what is God doing here? Well, there are a couple of observations that I want to I make with this. I want you to notice, first of all, that God, in establishing a command, is establishing his authority over Adam and Eve. So it's like, as a parent, when you have kids in your home, you establish house rules for your kids. And then when they break those rules, there's a consequence to that. What that does is it solidifies your authority as the parent in the home. And then as an employee or as an employer or as a boss, when you establish work rules for your employees, you're, you're, you are stating and demonstrating your authority over them. That's exactly what God is doing here. That God is establishing authority over Adam. And practically what this means for us as men is we live as men. We're not autonomous. We're not dictators. We, we are followers of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We take orders from him. We are men who live under authority and we joyfully submit to that authority. Which means that we walk in obedience. That a picture of godly masculinity is that we walk in obedience to what God has said to us. Now the second thing I want us to see about this commandment is you see, that, you see this principle that, that God is not really into rules. He's in relationship. He establishes a command. He establishes a rule. But he's not into rules for the sake of rules. He's not into commandments just for the sake of commandments. He's, in other words, he's not trying to be our cosmic killjoy. He's not trying to limit our freedom. God gives us commandments for our blessing. He gives us, he gives us commandments for our, for our flourishing. That's what you see. Now, let me dig this one out a little bit. So he gives us one command. He gives Adam one no, but he gives him a whole lot of yeses. Did you catch that? He gave him just one no, but he gave him a whole bunch of yeses. So he's not really trying to limit Adam. He, he's, he's intentionally giving him one command to protect him. But, but think about the yeses that God has given Adam. He said, <clears throat> basically, oh, you can eat all the trees in the garden. You can enjoy all of those trees. Take great joy and delight in all of those trees. And then he tells them, I want you to, I, you know, I want you to 
enjoy that and rule the earth. And I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Now, men, did you hear that? Being fruitful and multiplying. That is a command of God. Uh, you know what the Hebrew is for be fruitful? Um, bow wow, chicka wow wow. That's what that is. Um, sex is God's idea. Do you see that? Like God came up with the idea of it. Isn't God a good, good father? I mean, isn't that awesome? And what he says is, I just, you know, I just want you to, I want you to enjoy it within the protection of the boundaries that I've set in marriage. It's really, really good. It's for your blessing. I just want you to use it within those bounds. Isn't God good to give us that? And so he, he, he gives him one command and he says, he says to Adam, look, if you break this one command, it's going to bring pain and heartache in your life. And I think we need to understand why God gives us precepts, why he gives us instruction, why he gives us principles to follow and law to follow and, and rules to follow. It's for our flourishing. He gives us he gives us work so that we can help other people flourish. He gives us boundaries so that we can flourish. That's at the heart of what is going on here. Now, look at, let's go back and look at 1 Corinthians 16. And, and uh, as we're kind of on this topic of obeying and following God's, God's will and God's way. Notice, notice what he says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be watchful. You see that? Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in, in, in love. Okay, so be watchful. What does it mean to be watchful? It means this. It, it really means that you wake up every day and you're aware that there's danger around you. You're aware that you have an enemy. You have a determined enemy. And, and he's trying to destroy you. You've heard it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, guess what? Satan hates you and he also has a plan for your life and that plan is to destroy you. And what Paul is saying to these men is I want you to be sober. I want you to be watchful. I want you to wake up every day aware that the enemy is trying to disrupt the blessing of God in your life. You need to be aware of that. He is absolutely trying to steal from you lie to you, and he's trying to condemn and accuse you. He's got three tricks that he's been using for thousands of years. He has nothing new, but he just keeps doing them over and over again. And we have a tendency to kind of fall for them. He lies to us and tells us that we can't trust God. We, you know, that God's not, you know, that we really can't trust him. We need to trust ourselves. He tells us that he steals our joy by telling us, you know, God doesn't have what's good in mind for us we need we have a better picture of what's good for us better than God so we need to take that into our own hands and then when we fail and then when we fall what does he do he kicks us while we're down he's the original guy that kicked while we're down that's the guy that started at Satan and what Paul is saying is I want you to be watchful I want you to be mindful of his tricks I want you to be aware of that be watchful because he doesn't want you walking in obedience to God's word. That's it. Because that leads to blessing in your life. Now, I will talk to men. I've, I've pastored long enough to, to see this pattern. We talk about being a spiritual leader. And I don't know what happens, but a fog comes over the room at that point. I don't know, because it just seems, I don't know, we've not had good models or maybe as pastors, we've not explained it that well. But when we talk about being a leader in our marriages and in our home and in our family and the community and the church, we just, we just don't know what that means. We get really, we start feeling inadequate. And can I just take away the mystery out of this? If you want to be a leader in your marriage, you want to be a leader in your home, you want to be a leader for your kids, you want to be a leader in your church, you want to be a leader in the community, here's what you need to do. You first need to be a follower. That's where it starts. In other words, you can't be a leader until you really are a follower. Because where else are you going to lead people to? You can't lead people to where you are not at yourself. 
And so leadership in the home, leadership in the marriage starts with a heart posture from me and from you, men, that says, I want to follow Jesus. I want to obey him because his will is perfect, good, and loving. So that's it. God has called us to be workers. He's called us to be followers. Number three, he has called us to be lovers. He's called us to be lovers. Now look at verse 18. Let's go back to Genesis 2. I know we're kind of moving back and forth on this. So Genesis 2 verse 18. Let's go back and and look at this. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Okay, so this is pre-fall. This is pre-sin. The garden is perfect except man is alone. Adam is alone. And God says, I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. So God has called us as men to love our wives. He's called us. He's called me as a man to love my wife. He's called us to be lovers. Workers, followers, and lovers. Now let me, let me just, because I'm dealing with uh, diversity in the room. Let me, just, let me just speak to the single men in the room. Some of you may be called to singleness. Singleness is a call from God. And the New Testament purpose for singleness is so you can be more devoted to Christ's church. Because you don't have to devote time to a wife or to a family. You've got more time, to, even than I do, to give to the church. Because you, you, can, you can just devote yourself to the bride of Christ. That's the purpose of singleness. It really is. And if that's where you are, then praise be to God. That's a good place, Paul says. It's a great place, he says. Others of you are single and you're waiting for God to bring, you know, Miss Wright into your life. And the question then becomes, how am I, how am I, supposed, how am I supposed to wait as a single man? How am I supposed to wait? Here's, here's what I would tell you to do. God has called you to be a lover. You need to be in this waiting period. You need to love your mama. Can I get an amen to that? You need to love your mama. You need to love your sisters or sister. And third, you need to love your, your sisters in Christ in your church family. You really need to do that. And you're like, well, why, Scott? Because how you practice is how you're going to play the game. And if you, are, if you devote yourself to practicing well and preparing well, the king will give you one of his daughters. That's the truth. That's how you need to practice. Paul says, let all you do be done in love. That the defining mark of a godly masculinity is love. It's serving it's giving yourself away to be a blessing to others. And there's ample opportunity for you to do that in your family, in your sphere of relationships, in your, in your church family. Now, notice verse, verse 18. God says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Now, ladies, can I just speak to you just for a minute on this? Um, can I give you a little bit of a, uh, just encouragement you know, tonight you're going home and you're going to have dinner with your husband or with your boyfriend or whatever, or maybe it's next Friday. When you're having dinner with him, don't say, ladies, don't say, when are you going to start doing all those things Pastor Scott's talked about, you know? (laughs) Don't do that. That's the wrong answer. You're not helping at that point, all right? Just a clue. You're not helping at that point. Chances are your husband, as a result of this series, may take a step he may take several steps. Don't correct him. He may move into places he's never moved in before. Don't, don't correct him in that. Don't say to him, well, all of a sudden you want to take me on a date. We haven't been on a date in 10 years. I mean, what's up with that? You're just doing that because Pastor Scott said you should have a date night. Don't say that. Let, let your husband grow. Let him, let him grow in his leadership. Let him grow in his love. You need to be encouraging. You need to, go, you need to go like this. He asked you out on a date for the first time in 10 years. You know what you need to say? Let's go, baby. Let's do this. That's what you need to do. 
And so your encouragement, ladies, is so powerful. You know, when Luann, when she's in the kitchen cooking, she can't get the lid off the jar. And she asks me, honey, will you do this? And I go in there and pop that thing right off. You know what she does? She's like, honey, you are so strong. And I just, I just walk out going, you know. <laughs> I mean, you just, ladies, you have no idea. I mean, I could go out and lift a car after that. You have no idea how powerful your words of affirmation and encouragement are to us as men. Because most of the time we're really hard on ourselves and we're beating ourselves up. And we just need somebody that says, you know what? I believe in you and I love you. Man, that would go a long way. And so don't, you know, don't be, don't be so critical. And, you know, the other thing I would say, too, is men, we're, we're like puppies. You know, like, you know, we, you, want, you want something repeated, then you, you reward it with an encouraging word. And, you know, as men will say, man, I like doing that. I'll do that again. So, so that's, that's, that's a word for you, ladies. Encourage the men and the boys in your life. Look at, look at verse 21. Or verse, verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Now, this is, this is really interesting because he uses this rib. He, he creates Eve from the rib of Adam. Okay, so he doesn't form her from the dust of the ground like he, he formed men or man. But he, he takes the rib right out of Adam and, and forms her. And, and, then, and then look at verse 23. Adam responds to this. God brings Eve into his life. He's been looking at the animals. He knows that he's been missing someone. The animals aren't going to help. And all of a sudden he lays eyes on her. And then you see in verse 23, then the man said, and there's this quotation. And that's what this is signifying here is the Hebrew author of this wants us to realize he's breaking out into song. He's singing. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. I mean, he, he looks at her and says, whoa, man, she is beautiful and calls her, calls her woman. Now, the question is this, man, how do we love? How do we love our wife? Practically, what does that look like? Can I just give you three practical ways to love, to love your wife? I, I think one way that you can love your wife, men, is, is this. I think, I think a mark of godly masculinity is gentleness. I think that's a great way to love your wife, by being gentle. And you're like, what do you mean by that? One of the things that I've noticed as a pastor over the years and doing counseling, working with couples... There are a lot of angry men. There are a lot of men that are just kind of boiling underneath. And something hits it. And it's like a geyser that just goes off. And so then the kids and, you know, your spouse is just caught in the wake of that. And so there's a lot of anger. And we need to understand that God's purpose for anger <clears throat> is not to attack people, but to attack a problem. So anger can be good but you never want to attack another person verbally or especially otherwise, no doubt. And, and so a lot of times anger comes from you have, you have a will in your life that you want to see what, that you want to see happen and it's not happening. And what happens is we get angry and because God's not doing our will or somebody else is not doing our will or what we want to do. And, and, and we get angry and we, and we kind of take it out on them. So I just want to challenge you men to kind of search your heart and ask, is there, is there something that's driving me to express this consistent frustration or this anger, whatever it is? What is it? It could be that you need to submit to God's plan for you and not try to force your plan on God. Does that make sense? I think that's where some of that anger might come from. So that's one way to love your wife is dealing with, dealing with that frustration and anger in an appropriate way. I think another way that we can love our, to love our wife is, is really be forgiving. 
I think forgiveness is, is the fertile soil of a, a holy marriage. I really do. There are going to be offenses. There's going to be things said that shouldn't have been said, things done that shouldn't have been done. There, there are going to be those things in every marriage. And forgiveness is the key. And this past weekend, Friday and Saturday night, we, we had the marriage conference here. Many of you attended that. It was really, really good. And Dr. Tripp, the presenter, was really talking about that, that our ability to extend grace to our spouse comes from our realization that God has extended grace to us. That God has given us mercy. That we've blown it with him. And we realize the grace that we're in need of every single day. And so what that does is it gives you perspective. You know what? I don't have it all together. I need God's grace in my life. And so I can extend it to the others in my life. So gentleness is a great way. Forgiveness is a great way to love your spouse. I think friendship is a great way to love your spouse, men. To offer your, offer your wife friendship. To offer them your presence. Finding Finding common interests, finding things you can do together, finding time to talk and connect, those kinds of things build a friendship. I love this whole concept of God taking the rib out of Adam. There was an old rabbi that used this illustration. He talked about, he talked about the, the fact that, that God didn't take a bone out of Adam's head so that she would be over him. And God didn't take a bone out of his feet so that she would be under him. That he took a rib from his side so that she would be beside him. That she would be under his arm so that he would protect her. That she would be close to, her, to his heart so that he would love her. That is godly masculinity right there. That is what every woman wants. And it's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not in us alone, but, is, but it is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords working through us and in us. And that's, that's the heart of what it means to be a man. God has called us to be workers. He's called us to be followers so that we're transformed into leaders. And then he's called us to be lovers. That's godly masculinity wouldn't it be awesome if that could be men our witness to the world that we're not being left behind but we're leading we're loving we're providing we're protecting we're pastoring you know we're we're doing all of this for the glory for the glory of God now let me just ask you as you think about this message today what step could you take what is, what is one step that you could take today as it relates to your work? Maybe it's, God, help me to see and work tomorrow morning, to begin my work week, if this is when your work week begins. Maybe a practical step for you would be to say, God, help me to see my work as a means to glorifying you. Not merely just to make money, but help me to work and to do such excellent work that I bring you glory and honor. That'd be a great prayer that you could pray. That'd be a great next step for you. It could be that you want to be a better follower as a man. And perhaps one step you could take is to say, you know, if I'm going to follow God's, you know, God's commands, I need to get into his word to know what his commands are. I need to develop some reading habit, not, not too much, but just some where I can be fed the word of God in my life. That would be a great step. It could be that to be the lover that God has called you to be, you need to ask your wife out on a date. And after she gets up from fainting, you know, you help her up. I'm just kidding. That'd be a great step. Let me share with you one more opportunity that we have. One of our goals this year as a church staff is to help our men really get together in community. So we're launching in May, May 18th, 25th, and, and early June on Saturday, those Saturdays. We're, we're launching these things called men, Men's Action Groups. And it's very simple. We've got about 10 projects around our church campus 
that need the, the work and the attention of men. And I've noticed when, whenever there's a project here at, here at church and I need, I need some help, I'll ask for 10 guys and 20 guys will show up. Because I think we've got a lot of men that are just, hey, I want to help. Just show me where to work. I've got skills. I've got talents. I've got abilities. I have knowledge. Help, just show me what to do and I'll go do it. And we thought, you know what? Let's tap into that. We've got about 10 things, 10 medium-sized projects that can be done around here. We would love for you to help out. And part of our design in this is we're going to choose these Saturdays, you know, in May and early June. And you just show up and you get, you, you get grouped up with other men and you meet them and you meet new friends. And you take, you take a moment to pray together. Nobody's going to ask you to pray out loud, but you have a moment to say, you know, God, we want to invite you into this. And then after, you guys working really hard, you get the project knocked out, and then you realize it's about noontime. Hey, let's go get something to eat. And then you guys go off and, and uh, do one of the things that men do you know, really well, that's eat. Can I get an amen to that? And there's something life-changing about when men work together and men, men pray together and men hang out together that's life-changing. And it's not a long-term commitment. You just show up on a Saturday and do it. So we would love for you to do that. And if you're interested, just sign up on your Connect card. Uh, you can sign up, check the, put your name on it, put your phone number, whatever, email address. And then there's a box there that says, I want to sign up for men's action groups. That's a great next step for you. Because we want to build into the men of Stones. And we want you to be a part of it. Let's, uh, let, me, uh, let me just take a minute and pray. And I'm going to ask the band if they'll come on out. And um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your blueprint for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would just raise us up as men, as godly men and as godly women, that we would fulfill the roles that you have us to fill and it would be for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that it's, truly not by might it's not by power but it is by your spirit says the lord and so we thank you and we love you god and we praise you today i ask that there would be men this week that would take a step towards you and towards their family towards their spouse this week and may you be glorified May you be honored. We thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen.